Today is Wednesday, November 25th, and it is also International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. I'm Grace. I'll be hosting Handful this week, uh, along with Shireen Alnaga, who is uh, a contributor to Novel Hand. So this week we're going to talk a bit about a collaborative article we worked on highlighting this International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. So Shireen, would you like to give us a bit of an introduction to what this day is all about, you know, why we should care about it, and, and what about these issues really matters today? Yes, of course. Thank you so much, Grace, for um, co-authoring this article with me and collaborating and also for hosting and co-hosting this podcast. I'm so excited to be on and so excited to contribute another article to Novel Hand. So today, as Grace mentioned, is the 25th, which marks the 39th year celebration of the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. And so this day was originally founded in 1981, and it was inspired by women's rights activists and also demanding attention to gender-based violence across the world. And so the UN, along with its General Assembly, started passing actions and one such action was resolution 48104 which was adopted in 1993 by the general assembly and it's also known as the declaration on the elimination of violence against women and this resolution outlined a future of a world without gender-based violence and so although the future and the hope is to have a gender-based violence-free world, that yet is not the case, and that is still why we should care so much about gender-based violence as it is still occurring today in 2020. It's still a salient issue, especially since COVID-19 hit and we're seeing increased rates of domestic violence. We're also just seeing increased rates of violence in general. People are um, trapped in their homes and locked in their homes, sometimes with their abusers, which is causing some of this. And also just generally, we are still seeing violence against women and against non-binary folks all across the world today. And so this resolution is essentially supposed to encourage governments it was passed by the UN, just as a reminder. It's supposed to encourage governments, international organizations, NGOs, et cetera, to essentially recognize the importance and the need to reduce gender-based violence and to reduce violence against women. And it's also supposed to encourage the organization and programming of things or programs that help to raise awareness about this issue and also to combat this um, issue of gender-based violence across the world and also within the United States. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I think that it's really clear that it's super important to continue celebrating the International Day for the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Um, and I am elated to hear that there are actually substantial steps being taken internationally to, to try and address this issue. Um, yeah, for sure. So I know you worked a little bit more on thinking about the progress and some of the things we've essentially already been doing to try to reduce and minimize gender-based violence across the world. So could you tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of how we've done in terms of eliminating violence against women? Yeah, I would say that overall we can we can look at this pretty positively, you know, since as you mentioned the founding of of this day in 1981. Uh, we've, we've seen a lot of steps taken to combat violence against women, 
um, through, throughout the world. Uh, the UN itself has noted that at least 155 countries have passed at least some laws which um, protect women and children and, and victims of domestic violence, um, which signals some important progress in, in these steps so far. Um, many countries have also made additional efforts to address violence against women and myriad other forms of violence um, through programs that are targeting things like early education, uh, the development of respectful and gender equal relationships, and as well intervention with men and boys who play a large role in the perpetuation of violence against women and, as you mentioned, also non-binary folks and, and people who are stuck at home um, and, and don't have as much autonomy out in the world. Um, as you mentioned earlier, there's also that 1993 UN Declaration on the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Um, outside of that, the, the biggest international treaty addressing violence against women is this Convention on the Elimination of All Forms of Discrimination Against Women, which is more broadly known as CEDAW. Um, CEDAW is really, really popular in the international community, and there are 189 party states of the, I believe, 194 in um, in the UN right now, which is just phenomenal. And unfortunately, the United States is not actually a party state to have ratified CEDAW. Um, it's only a signatory, which um, if you're not aware, that means that CEDAW doesn't really have a binding effect upon US law. But the US has signaled credible commitments and, and other ways to address violence against women. Um, I think that we can look at all of these international laws as signals that regional and global norms about women's rights and gender equality have changed in the past 40 years since this day was first instituted. Um, it suggests that things are changing all the time in order to produce a, a more gender equal world, a world that rejects violence against women and gender-based violence in general. Um, and we can look to specific countries to see the really ambitious policy goals that they've implemented toward this end to, to see that kind of progress. Um, some of the most successful programs are, are resources and, and um, support for, for survivors of violence themselves, um, data collection programs that, that try and precisely estimate what instances of violence against women are taking place, as well as um, looking at reform of domestic attitudes and behaviors, which are really important for uh, preventing the persistence of gender-based violence. On the more negative side, there are certainly many challenges that remain for eliminating gender-based violence. Um, we've talked a lot today about these laws that, that help prevent domestic and intimate partner violence, but other types of violence against women still must be addressed and uh, remain really pressing throughout the world. Uh, female genital mutilation, trafficking of women and girls, forced child marriages, these are all things that are pretty widely practiced. Um, notably, the UN has found that there are several countries in West Africa where more than nine out of 10 women under the age of 49 have experienced female genital mutilation. And similarly, the UN Department of Economic and Social Affairs has found that one in five women globally between the ages of 20 and 24 were married before the age of 18. And these things, these forms of violence against women are not isolated. They often contribute to further forms of violence against women, um, making women more susceptible to experiencing domestic and intimate partner violence in the future um, or, or facing other forms of violence, including uh, very public forms of violence in addition to these private forms of violence that we've talked about. 
So there are certainly these uh, persistent forms of violence that, that need to be addressed um, and, and need to be incorporated in the talks about how we can make progress and what steps we can take in the future. Uh, one other thing that I think is important to mention as a challenge to uh, reduce violence against women is the disproportionate effects that, that um, female parliamentarians experience of violence. Um, and while these forms of violence are often not physical violence, the psychological violence that, that women parliamentarians report is, is so widespread that 82% of, of female legislators have reported they've been sexually harassed in office, they've experienced death and rape threats, they've experienced sexist remarks. And even though we're seeing promising steps in terms of women's representation in office, it's very important that we consider how a greater presence of female parliamentarians, female legislators can help advocate for laws that are really sensitive to the demands and the voices of victims of, of violence um, and particularly female victims of violence. Thank you so much, Grace, for going through all of that and giving us, you know, the full rundown of both, you know, some of the progress that we've made internationally as a nation, but also a lot of the challenges that you brought up. Obviously, another reason why this issue is so salient is because there are still so many challenges, just like Grace said, even though we're seeing more representation, for example, folks who are representing aren't necessarily safe. So it's important that we protect the women who are representing us in legislature, for example, or protecting women who may not live in the United States, but are living outside and have certain norms that are perpetuating more forms of violence against women. So it just speaks to essentially the saliency of the issue even more and essentially gives us more motivation to try and tackle some of these challenges that we are still seeing and this annual celebration kind of serves as a reminder that every year, every day, really, we should be looking at this issue and thinking of potential solutions to reduce violence. And another challenge I'd like to you know, discuss a little bit with you is the effect of COVID-19 and the pandemic, because this certainly has worsened a lot of the outcomes when it comes to violence against women, um, particularly for domestic violence and intermittent partner violence. And so I've heard of a term shadow pandemic. So Grace, would you mind talking a little bit about what that means and talking about a little bit of what the pandemic and COVID-19 means for survivors and potential victims of domestic um, abuse and intimate partner violence? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for bringing this issue up. Um, and like you said, we've, we've seen with the COVID pandemic and, and people being more isolated that uh, rates of domestic violence and intimate partner violence have risen. Um, and as well, we've seen that victims are being forced to stay at home in close quarters with their abusers. Um, you mentioned the term the shadow pandemic, and that's this term for the double pandemic that's taking place that's in this very private sphere of the home where this increase in domestic and intimate partner violence is, is really being exacerbated by the fact that women, children, victims of, of violence in the home are not able to get away from their abusers or able to seek out resources. Um, while in some places calls to domestic violence services have increased, there's also been this really harrowing finding that in some places calls are dropping and 
we can only assume that this is because victims don't have the opportunities to safely and privately seek out this necessary help and seek out these services that, that could allow them to get out of these unsafe conditions at home. Um, and so while it's encouraging that we have so many policies that address domestic and intimate partner violence that can help reduce the prevalence of this violence, it's really important that during the pandemic, when people are especially isolated and forced to spend more time at home, that we think about alternative ways that, that we can support potential victims or survivors of this violence. Um, specifically, some of the actions that, that main advocates in this sphere have talked about include uh, taking action to prioritize some essential services like shelter and support, um, since it might be difficult to get out of a, a, an abusive home right now, as well as providing some economic support and stimulus packages that can allow for uh, economic independence and broader recovery after the pandemic ends. I wanna circle back to something that you mentioned in your last comment about the, the importance of perspectives. Um, and I was hoping that you would mind, wouldn't mind sharing a bit more about the, the sorts of advocates and organizers who've been involved in this fight against violence against women um, and particularly which voices we can listen to um, as members of the Novel Hand community outside of just those very institutional voices like the United Nations, for example, or, or like a federal or, or national government. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much, Grace, for that question. As much as the UN and um, international institutions, such as the United Nations, do and do make a lot of headway in terms of policy and thinking about policy and data when it comes to international rates of violence against women, I think it's very, very important to address the type of grassroots organizing, community work and activism and advocacy that folks have been doing on the ground and continue to do on the ground and have been doing that for years and years, for decades. And some of these voices particularly marginalized folks and particularly women of color, more specifically black trans women, have been at the center of activism and organizing specifically against gender-based violence. And a lot of these folks have been at the forefront and at the center of this movement of organizing and advocating and protesting for rights, especially since we know marginalized folks, especially black women and black trans women and trans folks in general, experience higher rates of violence and gender-based violence all across the world. And so it's important to center these experiences. It's important to listen to these folks. It's important to follow the lead of these folks because really, as I said, a lot of them have been at the center of this movement for so long. We can think of organizers like Stormy Delaverie or Marsha P. Johnson as black and queer activists who have been at the forefront. And those are just two examples of many queer black activists that we should be thinking of. And again, like I said, following the lead of because often their voices get lost. And it's it's an unfortunate truth that, you know, their experiences and their stories are often overlooked, not only in data gaps, but also just in lived experience and story and in policy. And so it's important that all of these mechanisms that we're using in order to try and influence and encourage change reflects the very people who need to see that change the most, including marginalized folks who have been at the very forefront of this action for a very long time. 
I absolutely agree with everything you just said. Um, and, and that's certainly something that's been at the forefront of, of my mind too, as, as we've been writing this article this week, thinking about what voices we need to in incorporate into the conversation and how we can amplify the perspectives that, that can enable us to provide more comprehensive solutions to um, address the elimination of violence against women. Uh, with that said, I think that we can kind of wrap up this podcast. Uh, are, do you have any last thoughts before I kind of wrap things up a little bit? No, I'm just really glad that we could, you know, again, highlight some of the action items potentially, like you said, supporting survivors, the importance of mutual aid and maybe potentially, especially with COVID and the winter coming, you know, donating things and donating funds to shelters and organizers who are doing this work and trying to protect survivors in a trauma-informed and transformative justice lens. I think that's really important to stress, but otherwise it's been such a pleasure being on both this podcast and thinking about this issue with you. Yeah. Well, thank you. I feel like you wrapped it up better than I could. <laughs> <laughs> no worries at all. No, it's definitely been a pleasure and you've done a great job as well. Yeah. So just to kind of recap today, we've been talking a lot about the international day for the elimination of violence against women. I think that we can look at this in a really positive manner. We've, we've made substantial progress internationally, domestically, regionally, in, in all these different ways. Um, and while there are many lingering issues and lingering challenges that we need to address, I think that it's super important to consider how we as individuals can make a difference too, and not just observe the, the progress made by, by these large institutions like the United Nations. So, as individuals, as members of the Novel Hand community, some of the things that I believe we can work personally on include, including lending our support to the activists and organizations that are really championing an end to gender-based violence, especially you know, with a mind to what Shireen brought up with, with amplifying these, these marginalized voices that have been at the forefront in so many ways at, at advocating for this issue. Some of the other things we can do um, include working with programs that provide resources to survivors, um, advocating for, for more inclusive domestic policies that, that address gender-based violence in all of its forms, and also pushing for changes in our own communities to the attitudes and behaviors of individuals, um, especially through the form of education, something like what we're doing here by having this podcast episode and, and by writing this article. So thank you again, Shereen, for being on today. This has been a handful podcast episode, and we hope that you join us again on Nava Hand soon. Thank you.